No cotton candy? Well, tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, and we're going to begin at verse 25. Disciples and believers, believers and disciples. I want you to notice as we read this text, not all believers are disciples. There are two choices each of us make. The one concerns your eternal direction, and the second is your earthly direction. The cost of salvation is a gift. The cost of discipleship is life-altering. Discipleship is a choice to build, to fight, and to influence. Let's look. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest haply, after he hath laid, lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth 
whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt hath lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Notice that last phrase, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. What Jesus is saying is, does this matter to you? Consider carefully. The cost of discipleship versus the gift of salvation. Note in verse 25, we begin, as Jesus left the dinner with the Pharisees. The last couple weeks, we've been talking about uh, Jesus' teachings, and he was at a dinner with the chief Pharisee, and he was there, and he gave a couple parables. And now, as Jesus was leaving, there, were a great, there was a great multitude with him. How many is a great multitude? What in your mind's eye do you see when you say there was a great multitude? In Numbers chapter 32, we read, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. All right, I can envision a field with cattle. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 13 says, And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou seen this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand today, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. So here we have a great multitude of soldiers, and it was enough that when Israel was going to fight them, he said, you're going to win, and you're going to know that I'm God. In Matthew chapter 14, we read, Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and healed their sick. So, you know, I don't know right now if you're imagining, you know, the Fargo Dome or if you're imagining kind of the busy sidewalks in the mall or what you're imagining. The one that kind of helps either it be a great big number or kind of helps shrink it down, Matthew 26 says, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve came, And with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. So, how many is a great multitude? I don't know. It's a whole bunch of people. It's just a whole bunch of people. It's a whole lot more than just a group. And I I say that because so now we don't really know if they were waiting outside for Jesus to come out from this dinner Or as he was walking, was he collecting people who realized who he was and they had heard about him and they were wanting to see something? Or if these were a lot of people who had already heard him preaching and these were people that said, we'd like to follow him. We'd like to hear more of what he's saying. Because of the way he presents it, I tend to believe these were people that had already heard him. These were people that were embracing what he had to say 
But I find it fascinating when he says, There went a great multitude with him, and he turned and said unto them. We know one thing from chapter 14, verse 23, where Jesus, giving the illustration, said, And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out unto the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be full. Jesus wants everyone to be saved. But now he's addressing something differently. He's addressing discipleship. And I want you to notice the choice for discipleship. When we receive Christ as our Savior, we do accept this free gift. But I'm going to guess that you have met people who have received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior that do not act like disciples. They don't seem to be apprentices. They don't seem to be ones that are following after Jesus Christ that are really serious about what they're doing. They're serious about their salvation. But they have never made a commitment that really, where you see their life patterns changing. And Jesus is describing here, he says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. We know that can't be a condition for salvation. But I want you to notice the phrase that keeps being repeated, cannot be my disciple. And the question that I, as I was reading this, that I wrote in the margin multiple times was, why? Why can't you be a disciple of Jesus Christ without doing these things that Jesus said? Obviously, you can't, otherwise Jesus wouldn't have said it because Jesus can't lie. So hopefully, as we go through this, you're going to have that same question. You're going to say, why does it have to be that way? Why is this a condition that Jesus gives? First of all, I want you to notice verse 26. He says, you need to hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, and sisters, your own life, or else you can't be my disciple. Who are the most precious people in life? The ones Jesus mentioned. Father, the provider. Mother, the nurturer. Brothers and sisters, they're the encouragers. You know, when no one else in life likes you, usually your family is the one that you turn to. At least that is the way it should be. And so Jesus says, who are these most precious people to you? And then he even adds yourself in, because why? It's your personhood. It's your identity. And then he gives this comparison of hate and love. Now I'm going to read several other passages if you'd like to follow along. I think you'll enjoy the study more. In fact, if someone would like to read a couple of these verses for me, that would even be better. The first one is Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Would anyone like to read tonight? Okay. Who 
Who would like to read Genesis chapter 29, verses 30 and 31? And then if someone else would like to read Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. Anybody willing to read the Genesis for me? All right, Cindy. Anybody want to read Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17? All right, Micah. All right, Cindy. Uh, Genesis 29, 30 through 31. Notice he gives a definition for us in this text, just like he did in the first one that Twyla read. He says, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and then he uses this phrase. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, hmm, what does that mean? Micah, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. Thus shalt thou do unto all the cities which are very far off from I may have given you the wrong one. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. Is that what I gave you? Okay. I, may have to, I may have to read my, yeah. my wrong reference otherwise. If a man have two ah, wives, that's it. one beloved and the other hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated... Then it shall be, when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he hath, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn, by giving him a double portion of all that he hath. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. All right, now here we've seen three texts that use this love-hate. We see in the first one that Twyla read for us, he says, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. Did God hate Esau? Second one, the one Cindy read. Rachel was more loved than Leah, and when God saw that Leah was hated, he opened up her womb and gave her children. Third one, the one that Micah said. So now you've got a guy that has two wives, and the one that is beloved, and the one that is hated. Is this describing open hostility? Is this talking about hatred? What does this mean? Because as you read the scriptures, this one, especially about Jacob and Esau, can really kind of trip you up, and you just, you're reading it and going, well, he, he loved the one and he hated the other. But the word hatred is probably a difficult word for us. I would come back and I would say, here's the comparison. One that we read about, Rachel and Leah, one was loved more than the other. Therefore... It looks like, one, there was different affection. And so he uses the term love and hate. But all of a sudden you begin realizing, wait, wait. One, God did not hate him. But God demonstrated a greater love for this one than the other. Jacob demonstrated a greater love for one than the other. And he said, even if you have a preference, 
that's a whole different discussion. I cannot imagine being in that situation. But even if you had a preference for one wife over the other wife, he says, this is how you want to treat them. Now, knowing that, let's come back to our text. If any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brother, and sister, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is he describing? He's saying, there must be, there must be a first loyalty to Christ if you're going to be my disciple. There must be a first loyalty. He's not telling you if you choose to follow Jesus Christ that you've got to hate all the family members. But what he is saying is you're going to have to make choices and you need to make this your first loyalty. Your, um, the number one that you consider. Then the second thing in verse 27, he talks about First loyalty, now he talks about first choice. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now we have this phrase again, cannot be my disciple. What's he telling us? Well, let me first ask you this. What does it mean to take up a cross? I mean, we hear people say all the time, I guess that's my cross I have to bear. That's not what this is talking about. If you lived in Jesus' day and the Roman soldiers came up and knocked on Dan's door and you see Dan walking away with a cross on his back, what did you know? Give me a couple things that you should know right away. He's going to die. He's going to die. Second of all, what? Is Dan coming home? Dan's not coming home. Has Dan's life just changed radically? It's totally changed. We read it with our 21st century ears, but the reality is, he says, if you're not going to take up your cross, you can't be my disciple. So we know a couple different things. To be, God's, to be Christ's disciple, death has to be coming. No longer can a person live the way that they were. There is a death to the old lifestyle. Chapter 9, verse 23, we see this is the first time it's mentioned in chapter, in chapter 9. It's the first mention of the cross. And there he says, take up your cross daily. And I think that helps us to understand, if we're going to be Christ's disciple every day, when we get up, we have to choose this path of I'm going to I'm dead to my old lifestyle the things that I used to do I don't want to do those things anymore and before we all of a sudden hear a lot of small violins playing saying wow I really got it tough remember what your old life was God's a good God he doesn't give you bad things all of a sudden, we begin thinking about the fact, every day, I get to get up and I make a choice. I'm assuming you're the same way I am because you're a person too. Every day, I have to get up and I decide, am I going to take my cross, meaning am I going to die to my old way, to my old habits, or am I going to continue on in those habits? 
My salvation is secure in Jesus Christ, but my sanctification... You see this term we've been looking at? My sanctification is now my relationship to sin. Justification is my relationship to God. That's secure. But sanctification is a partnership. It's a daily choice. And Jesus is saying, you can't be my disciple if you're not going to take up your cross. If you're not going to abandon the old patterns of life, the old way. Why can't you be a disciple? Because discipleship takes focus and commitment. Following Christ is life-altering. It doesn't just happen. The day you got saved, did you instantly lose all your old habits, lose all your old way of thinking? Did you instantly become the super-Christian? No. When I got saved, I, I, I had a grateful heart for what God did that I could never do. He paid a debt I could never pay. A debt he didn't owe. But now every day, I have to read his word. I have to be willing to take God's word and let the Holy Spirit apply it to my life. And that's the reason why Jesus said over and over again, he said, you have to have a first loyalty to being my disciple. If you really want to learn of me, you have to have this commitment. Because you see, we're going to have other people that will get in our way. And if our first commitment is to our spouse, if our first commitment is to our children, if our first commitment is to our siblings, if our first commitment is to ourself, you can't be his disciple. He wasn't being mean. He was telling them the truth so that they could react to the truth and have victory. Second thing, he talks, he's talked about the choice of discipleship, but I want you to notice he talks about the cost of discipleship in verses 28 through 33. He says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, what cost whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest, haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that, begin, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now I'm going to pause there, and then we'll look at the second half of it. First of all, the cost of discipleship. He talks about the illustration of building a tower. Notice how he says, He sitteth down and considereth. This isn't a snap decision. He stops and thinks, What does it take to build this? What does it take to accomplish this? And then he decides, am I willing to put the resources toward this? You know, that's the way it is in our lives. We get up, and we only have a certain amount of resources, and we have to decide, will I be a disciple? Am I willing to be a disciple? Then he talks about not only building a tower, but he talks about fighting a battle. Look at the next uh, verse with me, verse 31. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? You know, this is an interesting text because on one side, you have a king who is deciding to go to battle. 
But then later in the verse, you notice he says, trying to decide if he can defeat the other king that cometh against him. Not that he's going to be fighting, but that cometh against him. And I believe Jesus was setting out two things. The first one with the tower is, are you willing, you need to sit down and understand, discipleship does cost. It's going to cost you resources. You know, it's, it's not that you can just say, well, I'm a Christian, and yeah, I'll be a disciple, but I'm going to do all these other things. Jesus said, it, you can't do it. It's not possible. But the second one is, he talks about going to war. Can you afford not to go to war, really, is what he's going to tell you. You've got a king. You're deciding, I'm going to take this battle, and I'm going to be on the offense. And you've got to decide, am I going to go on the offense, because he's going to come, or am I going to sue for peace? And you have to stop and analyze the cost. Why would a king fight against another king with less numbers? He wants what he has. It's dangerous to his citizens. So we find, and he summarizes it in verse 33, he says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that, for, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is not a call to give away everything that you have. But what it is a call to, he says, you can't fight this unless you're willing to yield your ownership of what you have so that all those resources are now available. He said, it's a choice that you're making to build a tower, to fight the battle, to forsake all. The cost of discipleship, to follow the Lord and to really learn of him, it will cost us. It's going to cost you. Notice the last thing he says in verses 34 and 35. There is a commitment to discipleship. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It really isn't good for anything. And then he says, are you listening to what I have to say? Literally, the commitment of discipleship is, if you're salt, be salty. Be ready to be salty. Be ready to get involved. Not all believers are disciples. You know, in my, in my heart, I love to be able to point people to Jesus Christ. I love to be able to disciple people that have gotten saved to point them how you can follow Jesus Christ. I love to see people take those steps and to see them then go out and begin doing that same thing. There are two choices, though, a person makes. The one concerns the eternal direction that they're heading. The second, the earthly direction they are taking. The cost of salvation is a gift. The cost of discipleship is life-altering. To be all in... The discipleship is a choice to build using your resources to fight. It's going to take your strength and to be an influence. What's worth living for? What's valuable? An old song, it was old, I thought. I learned it was not as old as a lot of hymns that we sing. 
It's a song, I sought a flag to follow, a cause for which to stand. I sought a valiant leader who could my love command. I sought a stirring challenge, some noble work to do, to give my life fulfillment, my dreams to satisfy. I found them all in Jesus, the life, the truth, the way. Beneath his flag, I'll take my stand and follow him today. Jesus was honestly putting before them, here's purpose for living. But Jesus didn't present something that was dishonest or deceptive. You know, we're not surprised that to do something well, it takes a sacrifice and a commitment. I was talking to someone just this week, and I told them, I said, you know, until I got married, I was free to date whomever I wanted. When I got married, I made a choice. I want one person. Now that commitment meant a sacrifice from this. But let me tell you, this, this is a great deal. It's not a sacrifice that I look back on and go, oh, wow, I'm stuck for the rest of my life. No, it's wonderful. But with this comes this choice. Jesus is worth it. It's such a different life. But he says, no, going into it, that it's going to radically alter your life. You know, we as a group of friends, a group of believers, a group of, of people that want to see Fargo reached, we've all banded together as a group of believers, as a church. And the, the, really, and cool, the really cool thing is, each of us are now beginning to reach out and we're finding new people all the time. You know, isn't it cool to think you go swimming and you come back having had an opportunity to invite people to come to church? I mean, how do you get from swimming to church? Well, it was a choice. You know, they could have just as easily not said anything. Each of you are doing that. And it's exciting for me to come and to watch that. And the people that you know and that you have influence with, and they don't really care that they meet me. They don't know me. But we're like the people that are bringing the lame guy. Four of us get together and we bring the lame guy to Jesus and Jesus heals him. And I just want to put before you, we have a great cause. We have a great purpose. Jesus at this point has not called you to leave here and go somewhere else. But we still have this commitment for discipleship. A believer and a disciple. Maybe you've been rejoicing in your salvation, but you really haven't ever made that commitment to say, I'm going to be a disciple. Listen to what Jesus has said. Go in with your eyes open, but go in ready to be part of the best group you can be a part of when you're Christ's disciple. Let's pray together. Our Father.